I, uh, I was geeking around on my phone yesterday, which I haven't done in years. When I first got my iPhone, I downloaded um, about 500 apps, I think. They're all still there. I, I've used maybe two of them. Is anyone else like me? I don't have them in the little cute boxes like the productivity box or the, I don't know, media or music. You know what I'm talking about where you can group them? I Kip's tried to get me to do that. It seems a little bit um, like a hassle. So I have 20 pages of apps that uh, you can scroll through. I got some really great conversion apps and altimeters and just weird things that um, I'd never really use. Uh, so I kind of tend to do that. When things first come out, I just I think this is going to be the greatest thing. I'll get like a thousand of these. Um, my first computer when we started Antioch podcast came out and iTunes University. Remember when iTunes U came out? Um, I downloaded something like 100 gigs of content and locked up my computer and Kip had to come down and, and kind of sort it out because I thought somehow I have access to all knowledge and somehow I'm going to be able to take all this in and I will be the smartest human being ever, listen to every college class uh, ever given. And I never listened to one, um, not a single iTunes U. And then the podcast thing just freaked me out because I had too many of them. Um, so now everyone listens to podcasts and I kind of ruined it for myself by not doing it the right way, like subscribing to one or two and having it like delete after you listen to it. Um, so Evan says he's going to help me um, get set up doing it right. But I kind of binge with these things. Um, yesterday I, uh, I got onto um, iBooks and saw that they'd kind of taken the audiobooks portion out of iTunes somewhere along the way and put it into the iBooks library thing. Uh, and I was sitting, um, I had a quick little one-day trip down to San Francisco visiting one of our partners that I'm on the board of. And so I was kind of in this airport and thought, oh, that's really cool and it looks really cool. Um, I wonder what iBooks are out there. And then about $200 later, um, I felt like I had to listen to one of them to, to justify. Uh, so randomly, I started listening to Brene, uh, Brene Brown's latest book. So I don't know if you know uh, Brene Brown, but she's kind of become a phenomenon of the last half dozen years. She had a, she's a, just a professor um, kind of doing her thing really sharp, and she did a TED Talk that blew up to one of their kind of 10-time, um, all-time, most-watched TED Talks. And it was on vulnerability and shame and those kinds of things. Uh, and she's an amazing researcher, so psychologist, sociologist, really kind of getting into the human psychology and then kind of revealing things that you just didn't think about otherwise. And so her latest book uh, is on this sense of belonging. I didn't know that, but it's called Braving the Wilderness. And so I started listening to it. Um, and the whole introduction, she kind of tells this story of her childhood that she had difficulty kind of fitting in her belonging. She uh, was finishing up, she was in school when segregation came down. Uh, she was a white girl that ended up in a lot of um, kind of friend circles with African-American children in the South and then didn't get invited into other parties because she was hanging out with those kids. And just kind of this was her childhood. And she began to get this sense of not belonging and then bouncing around and then um, some marital, uh, marriage difficulties with her family. And she's kind of articulating this childhood where she's struggling with her sense of belonging. And then it gets to moving to this new school and they have this dance team. This drill team, you know, the, back in the day, the old, old style. 
And she was going to do this, and she got the music, and she had done a lot of ballet, and so she knew she was good at it. And she rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And she went to the tryouts that day, um, imagining being able to be a part of this crew and to come out during halftimes of football games and to be a part of this team that the school kind of looked up to and revered. Uh, And when she showed up at the tryouts, all the other girls came with blue and gold everything, ribbons, stuff in their hair, twinkly, I forget the words she used, but like sparkly outfits that matched the school colors. And she had her gray sweats on um, and, and looked frumpy, she thought. She didn't know. She just was coming comfortable. No one had told her that there was an aspect to this that you had to look like you exhibited the team spirit. So she went through the tryouts. She kicked. She said higher than anyone other than one other girl. Um, she was able to nail the routines and walked away feeling pretty good because of her ability to dance. And that evening, they were going to post who made the team, and there were some 70 girls, I think, that had tried out, and every girl had a number. And they drove to the school, and some of these loud, kind of happy girls that had, that had kind of piled out of cars and said hi to their friends and kind of grouped up during tryouts, and she was all alone. Those same girls were kind of jumping out of cars, grouping up, running to the the sheet of paper, and she walked up feeling very alone, and she went to look for her number, so the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, gets down to the 60s, and she was number, I think, 63, and it was 61, 62, 66, 68, and she kind of went back to think maybe in sequence it was going to be there, and it wasn't. And um, so she's telling this story uh, kind of in the audiobook in the iBooks app, uh, full price for audiobooks. They're like 20-something bucks. Um, and she said the, the worst thing, that one of the worst things that's ever happened to her in her life is she got in the car, and she had her family, she had her mom, she had her dad, and they drove away, and neither her mom nor her dad said anything to her. They just stayed silent. And so in that silence, she was trying to figure out, are they embarrassed by me? Um, are, they, are they somehow let down? Should I have done better? Are they okay with me, but they, they're just on to the next, that I didn't make it, but they're on to the next thing? Like, how am I supposed to understand it? And, and in that moment, she said the biggest break in her childhood happened that would define decades of her life was that was one thing to feel like she didn't belong in society with other people, but to all of a sudden have an experience where she didn't belong even in her own family left her uh, broken. And as I was listening to this, I was thinking of all of the experiences that all of us have had that accomplished something very similar, um, a, a break kind of in our heart or in our soul or a wound, a deep wound. And it can be something really official like I tried out for this team, I tried out for this thing and it was this kind of epic moment on the calendar and I didn't make it and I felt completely just unhinged. Or it can be that one random Tuesday, Thursday where you go running up to a parent or a loved one and you're excited to, to reveal something of your heart to them, something you're passionate about, and, and they, they don't receive it. 
they ignore you or, or get frustrated with you and you walk away and somehow the symbolism in that moment was really significant to you. I don't belong. I'm alone. Um, I think this is kind of one of the deepest things. Physical abuse teaches us in a very real way that we don't belong, but I think the human interactions that are not physical abuse but just being let down um, reinforce a kind of loneliness and a hunger or a desire to actually know that we fit, that people want us there, that they're going to receive us no matter what, that we can't do anything that's going to remove us from their love or their desire to have us in their inner circle, that, that that hunger to belong is just so deep. And a lot of our wounds we can trace back, a lot of our dysfunction we can trace back to when that somehow went awry. The passage that we're in for this Advent is a beautiful one. It's Isaiah 9, um, verse 6. And it just reads, as I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, that for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That this Messiah, this child king, if you will, that's going to be born a deliverer of the nation of Israel, is, is going to be called by these descriptors that really show kind of the high and the low, the, the, the left and the right, just all four corners of who this magnificent person is as they come in and as they are able to give counsel, as they have power and might, mighty God, as they kind of heal relationships out there between me and you or between families or between societies or between countries, that that kind of reconciliation that they do is wonderful. But there's one of these names that's very deeply, deeply, deeply relational and speaks to that hunger that we have to belong. And it's this idea of the everlasting Father. I mean, just think of the paradox here. For unto us a child is born, dot, 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 everlasting Father. Right? I mean, just think of that paradox. This child describes the physical person that's being born that shows up in space and time and that that person is, is kind of the harbinger, the, the, the promised one that's going to bring some marvelous things, this deliverance, this salvation. That's the person. But the everlasting Father is the hope that we have that this person is bringing attributes with him that are going to somehow wrap and envelop us, uh, envelop us up and then make us complete. And that that's not for a one-time period. It's not going to go up and down. It's not going to kind of like ebb and flow, but that it's fixed. That this, this person is bringing the character of God with him. That this everlasting father is something that we can anchor ourselves in. And so I want to kind of explore that just a little bit. Um, it's remarkable, I think, because we're, we're wondering what is the, the son, Jesus, have to do with the Father. And going all the way back to the 300s and 400s, you have these, these giants of church history like um, Augustine and Athanasius and these early creeds, the Nicene Creed. And they were all trying to work out how the Father and Son could be the same essence, if you will, but be different people. 
So different persons, but having the same essence or nature. And so some of that is what's being worked out in this, that the Son is a different person than the Father, but then in the Trinity, they are both God. They're a part of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are all God in essence and, and in kind of these, uh, these attributes and character, but in a different person. And so you have the Son, the Messiah, Jesus, bringing with him the character of God and making manifest that to us. And so a great verse for this um, is uh, John 1.18. John 1.18, we can show it to you on the screen, reads like this. No one, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, and he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, over and over in his ministry, says, if you want to know the Father, look at me. I and the, fa uh, the Father are one. We are united in, in spirit and in purpose, that I do nothing on my own. I don't say anything. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't give me to do, that we are one. Um, how do you claim to know the Father yet reject his Son? All of these passages over and over to say that there's some kind of a parallel going on between the ministry of Jesus as he brings and makes, makes known the Father's character to us. So what does it mean that God is this fatherly ruler? Um, by the way, that's not an entirely unique, but an almost entirely unique thing to Christianity, the, the fatherliness of God. Um, so I want to give you two things that I think come with this, uh, what it means that God is fatherly and constant that way. The first one comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, and I'll read it for you. Um, but this is in the passage where Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, and it says this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Did I ever tell you a story, by the way, of um, uh, a guy in Hebron? He's a, he's a Jewish guy out of, uh, out of New Jersey. I think I've told you this story, right? Lives in, in Israel in the town of Hebron, um, which is one of the most contested cities. It's in the West Bank with, a Jerusalem set, uh, with an Israeli settlement. And so a lot of tensions. During, down the main street, they actually have netting to keep things from falling onto the Israeli people walking by because they reclaimed that, that downtown city street from the Palestinians that were living there. There's a lot of tensions. And an organization that we've taken trips with before, with Antioch, uh, going and studying this conflict, um, sometimes they'll go visit this American guy that, that lives, a uh, Jewish guy that lives in Israel, and he carries a revolver around with him on his hip. Um, and that guy will meet with the groups and in one of those particular groups, uh, as he kind of shared his worldview, one of the people kind of in the Q&A afterwards was really just distraught at um, just his overt racism, um, to be honest, and said to him, but what about loving your enemy? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's your verse, not my verse. I don't believe in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, this, this kind of idea of, of what was going on in the thought process coming into the New Testament, coming into Jesus' life, that you're to love your neighbor, but you're to hate your enemy, the other. And he says, you've heard that, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Rather, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So everlasting Father, your Father is perfect. What does your perfect Father do? Your perfect Father has steady and constant love regardless of whether people deserve it or not. This is where one of the challenges comes in, isn't it? That when we say Father, we realize it's a category that has an oughtness to it, that, that this idea, this promise, this vision would be that, that there's something stable, something secure, something grand, something big that you can kind of latch onto that isn't going to be temperamental, that is going to somehow um, be the thing that everyone needs and that, that we don't always experience that in human life. That sometimes there's an absent father, sometimes there's an abusive father, Sometimes there's a weak father doing the best that he can do, but that fathers in, in our lives become examples that somehow can let us down. And what we're talking about here is that, that Jesus is saying your perfect father, the everlasting father, has this ability to not think only of himself, but to be constant in his character and in his values, that his goodness overflows to both the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the things that people need, uh, water from the skies so the food can grow. He sends that to everybody. It's called the, the common good. The Father seeks the common good of all people, deserving or not, because that's in his character. And so the idea is, is, that if we're going to understand the fatherliness of the Father and of the Son, is that it's going to be this steady and constant love. The second thing is that God shows us in His, his fatherliness that, that that strength is always looking to find weakness and to be willing to give of itself to protect and, and to undergird that weakness. So Psalm 10, 14, we've got a couple Psalms for you here, but Psalm 10, 14 reads like this. But you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 68, 5 says this. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. There's two thoughts. Uh, maybe we can leave that verse on the screen. Here, there's two thoughts that come out of that for me. Remember when Jesus showed his righteous anger uh, and he goes into the temple court and he, he turns over the money changers' tables, the, the people that are taking money, giving defective kind of animals that, that people can use as sacrifices, and they're basically making this business out of religion and making a great profit, Right? And they're doing this, and Jesus comes in, he makes a whip, he really, excuse me, goes to this level that we wouldn't expect of the nice, docile, like, um, you know the Jesus in the paintings, all of them, pick which one. Um, He goes somewhere else, 
the, the, the Jesus that in some sense we might look at and say, you don't, you don't look much like Jesus. And he physically starts turning over these tables, cracking a whip, driving grown men and animals out of the temple court. It's a crazy story. I think the interesting thing for me with this story is that I've always focused on the tables, right? Because the picture of, of tables flipping, of coins kind of, kind of going flying, of, of commerce, the property, Jesus upsetting the economics of the city, and so to speak, that, that these animals running in the chaos, I've always kind of thought that that, that was the focus of Jesus, Right? Because his direct action was on this stuff, and this stuff goes flying. So I've always kind of just gotten caught up in this, this driving out business. Why was he driving out, though? What was it he said? He said, as he was doing this, that my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. See, I don't know that the money really mattered that much at the end of the day for Jesus. It's that the money was getting in the way. It was separating vulnerable people, widows, Greek-speaking people, because all these, these things were set up in what was supposed to be the court of the Gentiles, the place where they were supposed to be able to come closer to God and to pray. And all of this is going on and pushing out the vulnerable people. And Jesus comes into this situation and he knows the character of his father, his everlasting father, and that that the father wants to be able to love and be in relationship with people, especially vulnerable people. He has seen fit that they all have a place to be able to come into his presence and that somehow powerful men or men with, with commercial interests have over time created a system that has gotten between God the Father and those he loves and Jesus came in and picture it his righteous indignation his anger his violence if you will in pushing that out and saying no my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations God wants people to belong He wants them to be able to come close and to gain an audience. He's not going to be distracted. And so the first thing I get out of this psalm is that God in his holy dwelling, in his temple, has wanted people to be able to come to him. Second is this father to the fatherless part. Um, It's uh, been interesting, this 10-year run with Antioch. We started wanting to talk a lot about justice and and somehow doors opened for us to get involved with different aspects of social justice. By the way, social justice is not a bad word or a bad phrase. It's just a, a descriptive one. If you have a, a big pie and you want to understand all of justice, and justice is a part of the character of God. It's the, the scepter by which he rules, the Old Testament says. It's the footstool of his throne. If you want to understand this pie a little bit better, you use descriptive words. You use adjectives like criminal justice which gives us the slice that has to do with law and order, right? 
or international justice, how two sovereign nations are going to deal uh, with each other with fairness and equity. And you can even talk about business law and ethics, how corporations are going to somehow handle themselves in a way that's ethical, that's just. And so you can begin to kind of slice this pie around, but when you get to vulnerable people, orphans, widows, or the poor, or immigrants, or aliens, the foreigner, the stranger in your midst, What's the descriptor of how we're going to have justice in society? And it's social justice. It was a term coined in 1848 by a Catholic priest to talk about justice in society. And our church had an opportunity to get into those conversations. And the Justice Conference came and the, the, the book, Pursuing Justice, came. And it went and it went. And the interesting thing for me is after a while, um, it was probably the most tyrannical thing and, and has for a long time until I was able to sort this out, the most tyrannical thing in my life. Because for years, I've been walking into rooms and no matter what somebody's passion is with regard to justice, their expectation is because I'm the justice guy that I would somehow be perfect at it or an expert at it. I'd walk into a room and people care about the environment and they look at me with these expectations and all I want to do is crawl under the table and try and make excuses like, don't you know I have four kids? And they're very wasteful. Um, like, or I care and I, I really am trying to do things in my life, but, but I, I can't be as good at this as you are. You, your whole life is built around this issue and, and I feel like I can't live up to that standard. I'll go into a different room and it'll be re with regard to urban uh, poverty. And I'll, I'll look at that and there's an expectation that somehow with urban poverty, I'm going to be this expert. And I'm like, I live in Bend, Oregon. And I don't live in Chicago or, or here. And I haven't been doing this 20 years. But there's this expectation and I, and I have to live under that. And then I walk in and, and whether it's gender or immigration or race or whatever you want to say, this whole justice guy thing has been um, something that has tyrannized me. I've never been able to live up to people's expectations. And so I finally was able to get to a point where I realized what was going on and, and just said, I, I'm, I'm just doing the best I can period. That's all I'm going to commit to do. And I don't have to try and pretend when I walk into an environment. Um, and it's freed me up to see things maybe differently instead of always trying to prove myself just to reflect on something. And I learned something last night um, thinking about this particular passage is that I've thought about orphans for a long time as a social justice category. There are people out there, and we, you and I, should, should help them like we should care for the environment, like we should um, care for this, like we should uh, wages, like we should. It's, it's a category of social justice, and, and we should just do that. It's a part of our, our duty. But it starts with the, the weak or the vulnerable person and kind of our obligation with regard to them. When I looked at this last night in the context of Everlasting Father, there's something really interesting that just jumped out. It's simple. I don't know why I've never really thought about it before. But God calls himself a father to the fatherless. It shows up in, in a lot of places in Scripture. So it's not just about the fatherless. It's about the character of God. That God 
is a father at heart, period. He's not only a father to this kind of radius and within this circle, and, and once he's exhausted that, that's good. I've satisfied my fatherliness. Now let me go over and do something else. My, I don't know, hobby-ishness, you know, like, or my football-ishness, or my whatever else is in the heart of a guy. Um, there's no boundary for God. God is the everlasting Father. And when He's taking care of you and I, and when He's taking care of other people, and then He sees that there are the vulnerable or the needy, the fatherless out there that are unprotected, God in His, his, his fatherliness, this, this love that wants to expand, goes out and, and circles them with his umbrella of protection. I mean, picture that. God, God's heart seeks resolution in places where we have nothing we can give back but our need to be loved. In James, it says this, that true religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. True religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. You probably remember me talking about the story that when I, when I turned my life around at age 22, I read that verse and didn't understand it, but I wanted true religion. And so I started driving to a, a nursing home. There's no orphans that I knew of in, in Clemson, uh, South Carolina. It's a college town. But there was a retirement home some 15 miles away, and I started driving there and visiting people um, that were older, that, that were widows, and, and trying to figure out what does this mean, this kind of pure religion. And, and when I went, I thought it was going to be great, that I was going to get a lot of wisdom. I was going to get some really cool World War II stories because I, I, I'm a history buff. thought that would be fascinating. Um, and it was a lot of work. Whatever stories I heard, I would hear them again the next week. Um, it, was, it wasn't giving me much. And then I had the story of the guy that became my, my best friend in that place. He was the one I'd look forward to seeing until some of the girls that went and, and were visiting, Clemson students, I didn't know them that well, but they we would see each other there every week, came to me and said, this friend of yours is, is touching us inappropriately. Can you help us? Sure. And I went to him and I said, hey, man, um, you can't do this. And he says, oh, they like it. I said, no, they don't. And then he blew up at me and says, I never want to see you again. And I thought, now what? Um, I, I used to feel like I belonged even in this awkward place that wasn't very comfortable for me, where I didn't have any relatives. And now that one person that, that, that made me feel like I belonged has cut that relationship off. And it was probably not that time, but the next time driving back, praying to God as I'm going down a country road and saying to God, I don't understand this whole orphans and widows thing. I don't understand why that's pure religion. I'm not getting anything out of this. And then I realized, true love is love that gives itself away purely because of the desire to make the beloved or the other feel honored or like they belong. 
True love is a love that gives itself away and doesn't expect or demand anything in return. True love comes and finds somebody because they have need and will serve them and and say to them, I will be here even if other people haven't stayed in your life. I will become your father, not just give to you, but put my name over you so that even if you don't earn or merit this, it's still going to go with you like the prodigal son. You never stop being my son or my daughter. That God being the father to the fatherless is something so deep about the character of God that God is always going out and looking to wrap arms of love around us and say, I know you don't deserve it. I know you're not the perfect this. I know you get tyrannized by performance. I know that other people are pushing you out. I know that you lost those relationships, maybe even because you deserved it. But in all of that, I'm still calling you son or daughter. I'm your father. So... We see two things, Matthew 5, loving the enemy, the steady and constant love. And I think we see something deep about this father to the, to the fatherless. I was talking to Tyler Phillips. Tyler and Courtney Phillips in our church have taken in, I don't know how many dozen foster kids. Um, they have something to teach all of us. There's an aspect of their discipleship and others of you that have adopted and taken in foster children, you're learning something about the heart of God that I don't know that I fully have understood or am learning. And may we all learn from that. Um, So I want to kind of take us just a little different direction and then use this as kind of the wrap-up. There's something that's an interesting anecdote in Scripture. And it's this, this high priestly prayer. There was a... There was a blessing that occurred in the Old Testament that people knew or had memorized. It was a lot like um, the Sermon on the Mount or the, um, the Lord's Prayer. You know, kind of one of those things that the whole community kind of has memorized or when you begin to hear it, you pick up the cadence. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And we all kind of realize that's kind of a liturgical thing that, that we have in common. The Old Testament had something like that too. Uh, it was called the priestly, uh, the priestly blessing. And it comes out of Numbers 6. And so on the screen, it'll say this. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord, so God says to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons. So in other words, Aaron was supposed to be the father of the priestly class. Tell Aaron and his sons that this is how they are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. There's something amazing about what these parents did when we were doing the child dedication of reading a a prayer of blessing over their children, dedicating them. You are our child. These are the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations we have for you. We're going to dedicate you unto the Lord uh, with these kinds of words, and we're going to somehow name you that way. Uh, And that's incredibly important. It's incredibly important that that becomes a habit pattern through life. I, uh, I was wrestling in the middle of the night last night just with 
what human weakness actually means. What human weakness means for me as a dad, as a husband, is that it's not what's in my heart that people usually judge me by or even relate to me by. I love my wife um, as much as any husband's ever loved his wife. I love my kids so much that when I'm away from them and driving around in the car or, or sitting somewhere reflecting, I start to tear up and I picture myself in different ways trying to grab them, hold them, and to tell them, you belong to me. You belong here and I would choose you over anyone else. I want you to thrive, but no matter what, I'm safe, you matter. I picture this and you want to know what actually happens? A lot of times when I'm at home, instead of that heart, what they get is caught up in my temperament, um, my daily schedule, my energy levels. And so when they need it most, often they might not receive it. Um, when I'm all by myself and I'm feeling wonderful, heartly thoughts, that's great. I think it's a good start. But human weakness is this, that somehow I have to grow up into that perfection that, that uh, is my father, be perfect as he is perfect. The, the spirit, the, the fruit of the spirit would begin to emanate out of me even when I'm in a bad mood, even when I'm tired, even when I'm fatigued, even when a hundred people have interrupted me, but this interruption is my daughter. That somehow that character, that fruit would begin to shine forth. And so in those moments, I'm somehow reconferring on my child that, that you are named, that you are blessed, that you are desired, that I want your goodness that no matter what happens in this world, whether you make cheer teams or uh, basketball teams or baseball teams, that you still belong here and that I'll walk through that with you. I'll feel the pain accordingly uh, as you do. And so this idea of God wanting his people to be blessed and for that to come over and over was so that they would understand they are being named and chosen by God, that they belong to God. So in Leviticus chapter 9, we see Aaron then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people. That's the sign of making a blessing in the Old Testament. And Aaron lifted his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship, uh, fellowship offering, he stepped down. In other words, came, up, uh, came off down off the high places, lifted his hands, blessed uh, the people, and then they go down. Luke 24, we see Jesus go up, and it says this, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And then while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. Then they worshiped and went down the hill, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, the temple uh, of their father, praising God. This idea that's happening here is that that. In the Old Testament context, a blessing wasn't just saying something nice. It was repeating the high priestly prayer, the blessing over people. In other words, Jesus, as he's going to leave, says to his disciples, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace so that they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them that Jesus is appropriating the high priestly prayer and, and telling everyone, this is where you belong. 
and I receive you. It's an intimacy thing. Um, Brene Brown says this, a deep sense of love and long uh, belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, and we get sick. Jesus had such a relationship with the Father that when he goes up to pray, Aaron Pratt read it earlier, he's praying before he's going to be crucified on the cross, and he says to God in Aramaic, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. But it's this tenderness of talking about God as an intimate father. The the direct translation would be daddy, dad. And so Paul in Galatians says this, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son Jesus into our hearts. The spirit in our hearts that then calls out daddy. Paul will also say, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear of not belonging. Rather, the spirit that you and I have received brings about an adoption as as children, as sons and daughters of God. And by him, him, that spirit, we get to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. John 8, 35, Jesus says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son or daughter belongs to it forever. Those of us who are followers of Jesus have been adopted into God's family. The everlasting father is our father. The father that goes all the way to the extent of of taking on the fatherless. Uh, The God that goes even to his enemies and blesses them with rain and the good things that they need to live. This father that just exudes it, never runs out of it. This is our father that even when we don't belong in our own families or in our own cultures or society or even our friend groups, when you look on Instagram and realize you didn't get invited to the movie. That when you don't feel like you belong, we have a daddy that would fight people so that we could come back into the place that he created so that we would know and be able to experience and be able to pray to him. That anyone setting up a belligerent thing between him and us, that God's righteous anger would chase that away. We need an everlasting father. In some sense, that's what Christmas and Advent are all about, right? Emmanuel, Kelly, Calvin sing about this. Emmanuel, God with us. So I bring us back to John 1.18 that I read at the beginning, and it says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. It's in the face of Christ that we get to experience the perfection of this kind of a love. Jesus says, um, I'm trying a new Bible Gateway app because after I downloaded those books, I actually redid a lot of my apps. Um, and it, it didn't keep the verse. It, it failed me. Um, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, um, if only you would, you would turn. I, I long to gather you up like a hen gathers up her chicks. Whether father is the image or mother is the image, belonging is the idea. Jesus says, um, don't keep the little children from me. What are you doing? 
let the little children come to me. Come and touch me. Crawl up in my, my lap. Pull on my hair. Pull my beard. Let them come to me. If anyone in this world deserves to know that they belong, it's the little children. Vulnerable and weak. I want to make sure that I give them the face of the Father that doesn't say that they're not important enough to be included in the circle, that doesn't leave them out kind of at the kid table, but that lets them come in and take part in the meaningful spiritual things about what's going on. And so when we come to the table here, when we take communion now, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's Jesus in this moment, the same night that he cried out, Daddy, Abba, Father, talking about what's really going on here is that my body is being broken, my blood is being shed so that the forgiveness of sins, because none of us can live up to the tyranny of law. All of the ways that you feel like weakness makes you fail, that's okay. We get grace and are adopted in and get to experience the love of the Father and we love because he first loved us. We become transformed because the spirit of the Son now is gonna indwell us as we are adopted into this family of the everlasting Father. This is the good news. This is the gospel that everything has changed that we are named now, that we are pulled in, that we forever belong. So if you'll stand up with me, just the closing prayer, let me read the blessing over us again, and maybe we can put it on the screen. But this is the blessing God asked would be prayed over his people. And it's simply this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace so that we will have the name of the Father. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Amen.